Welcome to Season 8 of Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, a fascinating journey into the lives of top sports personalities and their connections to Chicago. They reveal entertaining, memorable, and emotional stories many you've never heard before. I'm your host, George Hoffman, and please follow this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and through our partnership with Last Word on Sports Media Podcast. Tell Me a Story I Don't Know is proudly sponsored by Mr. Duct, Chicagoland's premier comprehensive air duct cleaning and ventilation for residential and commercial properties. Their motto is simple. They're upfront and honest. Find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. This week, we feature former Cubs outfielder and current major league analyst, Doug Glanville. What did it for me was writing. When I wrote that very first article for the New York Times, a, pa a paper that my dad read every day, and I wrote it and I got this reciprocal feedback. That's when I really understood what it was to be close to my dad again. There's nothing that could describe writing as, as like a profession and do it justice for me, because it really is like therapeutic. It's really, it's like a connection to the past. Remember the ill-fated NLCS featuring the Cubs and Florida Marlins? Doug Glanville hit a triple to win game three for the Cubs. In 1999, he finished second in hits while with the Phillies and was best known for his excellent defense. But Glanville is far more than just a player. He wrote columns for the New York Times, teaches a course on sports and society, offers a similar concept on a TV show for a sports network, and co-hosts a baseball podcast. And is the grass really greener on the other side, or in this case, a baseball field? So, Doug Glanville, tell me a story I don't know. I guess I could start with something random that I tweeted a while back. I don't think anybody noticed, but I mentioned that I played an entire career of, and a love for baseball for, since I was a kid and I retired in 2005 and all along playing on these beautiful grass surfaces, I always had a severe allergy to grass. So I thought that was kind of a weird combination to be a baseball player playing on grass a whole life and actually be allergic to this stuff. Well, how did you manage? Well, I, I didn't do a very good job. I think I was not that consistent in any allergy meds. I didn't really take a whole lot of things. When I was growing up, I used to get uh, shots, you know, the, the homeopathic style. You build up your tolerance. And I did that for a while. It semi-worked. And then I um, kind of gave up to a certain degree and just dealt with it. So I had, um, and I was like, excuse me, with grass, I, you know, I had a pretty serious reaction and I found out playing soccer, you know, you do like shirts versus skins and I wore shorts and I would slide tackle or something and my whole arm, everything would just like break out. And um, yeah, I was like that allergic to it. Like probably, probably to this day, I would never roll in the grass. So, um, but you know, now as older, I found a good allergist in the last two decades. I treated it well and I, you know, feel good, but I still wouldn't like take a slide tackle. So that kind of started an interesting relationship in baseball because here I had this allergy. I was fighting like, you know, stuffy nose, runny nose, eyes, all these things. And then fortunately, uh, in many ways, I was traded from your beloved Cubs to the Philadelphia <laughs> Phillies. And as you know, they play on artificial turf. Yes. So that kind of set me free, at least at home games. And the National League had a lot of turf teams then, the Pirates, the Reds, you know, I don't know, whoever else, Toronto and all these teams. I was thinking to myself, whenever you played on artificial turf, 
It was a celebration. It was. It was a celebration. <laughs> People complained about it, like, and I know it was hard and terrible mostly, but I was like, wow, I could breathe out here. You know, it was kind of nice. So, um, so that kind of built an interesting relationship and, and managing that. I probably should have done a better medical job in dealing with it, but I just kind of weathered it and eventually found some good physicians in retirement. But that was my entire career, college career. I, uh, I dealt with allergies uh, in game all the time and wasn't, wasn't always good, but I did it. And so I think it's a good way to start like this strange dynamic of uh, allergic reactions and playing on grass surfaces in baseball. Well, I'm glad to see that you solved that problem. Uh, you're now in your 50s. You have four wonderful kids. Would it be fair to say you're leading a wonderful life that you fashioned for yourself? Oh, sure. I, yeah, I'm very grateful for um, for my life. And um, my friend Assad, I grew up, grew up with him. Uh, he was originally from Pakistan, and we're good friends for, I don't even know, 40 years now. And he used to say, well, you know, you start off on life and you don't realize you're on one leg. And then you meet the right person and then you're on two legs. <laughs> so, um, so I do feel like a lot of my life is just the fortune of who I was able to uh, connect with in my wife. And from there, four kids and been married over 17 years now. And um, yeah, just incredible. So, so I think my feeling of, of life at peace in many ways is because I've been able to share it with someone that you know, embraces all all that I am and vice versa. We have a, a very good yin-yang dynamic in so many ways, and it's been incredible, really. And I think the kids have been very purposeful. You know, you feel like, oh, wow. Now I feel like a motivation of, like, why I'm doing some of these things. Because there's times, you know, as a player, you're it's very self-centered as a player. You're like, ah, you know, it's about me. You know, I make money. You know, you just got to play and your stats. And I'm not saying you're selfish inherently, but you have a, you have to be very self-centered as a ball player. You, it's your life. It's your schedule. You miss weddings. You miss funerals. You miss all kinds of important events because you have to be at the game. And uh, my father passed away and was sick for the last three years of my career, and that was really hard. So I think within that, you, I found it very liberating to kind of be, be oh wow, you know, I can, I feel like I can give of myself to someone else, especially you have a baby and you're raising a child. It's a uh, I found it to be extremely uh, powerful and to, to kind of want to do for others in this kind of way. And I think that helped me be better in so many other facets of my life, you know, to, and, uh, and so although I'm at peace and really have a, have a wonderful post career, very thankful for that. I also still stir the pot because I constantly fight for, I don't know. I think it's a sense of fairness out there, you know, the equity, lens that which i which i grew up under and i think those are the times i don't rest and i really don't want to be complacent even if i'm at peace i want to continue to do what i can to make a more you know equitable world and fair world and sports has been a great avenue to do that you have a pretty full plate doug including being an analyst on espn radio sunday night baseball and you work with a rotating group of play-by-play guys including john shambi the voice of the Cubs and the two of you called the All-Star Game in Seattle. 6'6", 277. And the righty will deliver to Corbin Carroll. And that one is in for a strike. Yeah, I sat next to him uh, yesterday and I did not see the sun. It just, it just <laughs> disappeared. 
Uh, he throws a four-seamer. That's bread and butter so far this year. 64% of his pitches has been the four-seamer or have been. And the slider is his complement to that. And speaking of those Cubs, you also work on some of their broadcast on the Marquee Network. Sounds like you're a very busy guy, Doug. Yes, I have a lot of hats. Um, you know, <laughs> I think there was a function of a few different things that, um, I mean, I like to do, you know, I have a lot of interest. Uh, and my wife and I share a lot of those interests. So we, you know, we have a smorgasbord of activities. And then with four kids, you're just in a lot of spaces. But I, yeah, I have a passion for a lot of things. I think my, you know, one of the things I talk about good fortune is that, you know, I first had this amazing career to do something you love, like baseball. I loved it as a kid. I loved it growing up. My brother taught me everything. And then I had this wonderful career. And then one of the passions I had was writing, you know? So all of a sudden I have this next career where I'm able to write and this turns into this long extending media career. So that's how it was a collision of like how to express things in life and interpret things in life through a communication vessel and in, in writing and then it, it expanding from there into all these other forms of communication jackie robinson colored outside the lines he refused to stay inside the boundaries that limited how we saw humanity we were equal and only with scales weighed down by bias could we tilt the field in one direction or another? And I started to slowly realize like, well, wait a minute, not only am I still around the thing I love, but what I love to do can be really central to raising a lot of deeper conversations about uh, things that have, have social consequence, right? The ways that society can be a reflection of sports and vice versa. So that became another door that opened up and I started teaching a course and, and that kind of opened things up. Uh, you know, I think one thing I learned a lot from baseball was that, you know, it, it's easy to thank the people that supported you all along. And you should, of course, like, oh, there's all my, this guy was in my corner and my my mom and and of course, but there's a lot of detractors in your life. Some people literally want to lay in the road and some people want to destroy your career. It's just that's what it is. And I think I found that you have to be thankful for what they brought to your life as well, because I learned where I stood it, it gave me a certain strength about fighting back. Uh, those challenges, even if it wasn't out of the kindness of their hearts, was still important. And I think that I've been able to see the avenue by which sport and baseball in particular can influence people and change and, and inspire uh, ways that we could be better as teammates, so to speak. Tell me a little bit about the course you teach, uh, which I believe is done through the University of Connecticut. It's far more than just about sports. Correct. Well, it um, well, it started and there was a wave of layoffs at ESPN in 2017 or somewhere. And I was part of this wave and it was, you know, it was one of those moments like, well, what am I going to do now? Exactly. Right. Uh, I still had some other stuff percolating, but I it really was like eggs and all in one basket for the most part in a media sense. So I started writing down all these, these concepts and ideas that I always wanted to explore, but was kind of hard to explore when when the culture was like, stick to sports, don't talk about those things, da, 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 that kind of thing. So I was like, all right, I don't know where I can make a job out of this, but let me just try. So I wrote stuff down and I pitched this course, which I didn't really know was a course at the time, all over the place. I mean, all over the place. I went, I met with Manfred for 30 minutes. I went to the Players Association, the Alumni Association. I went to Harvard, Yale, Brown, wherever. I just pitched this course. 
and it was my alma mater, University of Pennsylvania, they said, I don't know, you know, this kind of looks like a class. So why don't you just take over my course? I had a professor who was gracious enough to let me take her class for a day. And she said, try it. So I did. And it went really well. They hired me. I taught for that semester. It was kind of a far commute. I love my alma mater, but I was, you know, three hours away by train or four hours. So I moved it to Yale, where I had a friend teaching in the political science department. And then I moved it to UConn, ultimately. But the theme was, it was a course about sports and society. Mm -hmm. And I started off as a, almost like a media communication course about how we interact and engage society through the media. And there was a little bit of public policy in there. The next one at Yale was a political science class, an African-American studies class, an American studies class. Same theme, sport and society. That had a bunch of students that were all kinds of disciplines in it. Then I moved to UConn and I centralized it all. And it became the history of sports activism as you move to current. So it's history and current events about sports and social issues. And it's looked at and examined through the lens of how change is made through sports. Media, which is, of course, you know, my wheelhouse. The law, legal, and through the political avenues, legislative, for example. So that's what the course is. And right now it's a, it's a writing class where you have to take the student's paper and re send it back to them with feedback, and then they resubmit. 15 of the pages have to be that way. And it's a required class for usually juniors who are majors in sport management in the School of Education at UConn. And I've been doing this is I, I just finished my fifth year at UConn. And um, it does really well. It's, it's popular. I, I've enjoyed it. I learned, I learned so much from fellow students. Um, it's incredible how much I actually learned from them you think you're the teacher, but really it's like the, the joke's on you. Hmm. So I, I love it. And it's really become a way to embody my passion around sport and, and its value to society in a way that I connect with the younger generation and, and stay current and and uh, bring in so many different moments from, from what's happening in the world. Uh, so that that's sort of, um, yeah, I, I love it. And I keep trying to expand on it. When's the last time you had your air ducts cleaned? Here's the best solution, Mr. Duct, a name Chicagoland has trusted for over 20 years. They work on your furnaces, air conditioners, and do repairs, maintenance, and installations. In other words, they're your all-around company for air quality choice and more. Mr. Duct provides on-site commercial ventilation cleaning estimates. You'd be hard-pressed to find better. So give them a call at 888-4-MR-DUCT. That's 888-467-3828. And Mr. Duct is the right choice to clean your residential dryer vents. They do a full inspection to make sure your dryers are running properly. Mr. Duct works with schools, health facilities, and office buildings to make sure you're breathing clean air. Their testimonials are endless, and with good reason. So don't think twice when you're ready to work on air ducts, dry vents, and so much more. Just think Mr. Duct. 888 for Mr. Duct. That's 888 467 3828. And find them on the web at mrductcleaning.com. Wilson, you sent the game winning email at the buzzer, avoiding a 455 meeting on everyone's calendar. How did you do it? I got a huge assist from Grammarly, an AI writing partner that helped me make my point. And it works everywhere I write. Summarizing a doc only took one click. When everyone uses Grammarly, Everything just makes sense. Go to Grammarly.com slash podcast to download it for free.
That's Grammarly.com slash podcast. Easier said, done. You wrote for the New York Times, and you also wrote an op-ed for the paper regarding PEDs. Absolutely. And I've written on unapologetically about all kinds of things, about, you know, Florida legislation, whatever. And, you know, but I think the theme of what I try to write through is is through coming together. It's understanding. It's harmonizing. Yeah, I'm going to call stuff out. I mean, but I'm also going to be optimistic about where we can go with this. We can be better. And it comes from the fact that I grew up in an environment that unless it was a figment of my imagination, proves that it's possible, right? We had a, a diverse community and it, and it certainly like TNAC had its issues. We know con- there was a, a, a shooting that would have been national news as a teenager got shoot by, shot by a police officer in my hometown. And that was obviously, that was after I graduated from high school. But this is a town that had invested and committed to integration and not in, as a punchline, but as a true way of life. And we just had our, I didn't go to it because I you know, couldn't go this year, 35th reunion. And people still feel like that they, they have access to each other from all walks of life. That was my town. And baseball was central, central to having different people on your team come together as one. So I think that, you know, knowing that sports became this avenue, and and by the way, that police department I mentioned who had, the, you know, shot and killed a teenager, um, and once again, there's a lot more to the story, but they hadn't fired a service weapon since that day. Since that day. They, they The entire police force for over 30 years have not discharged a firearm. That's truly, that's truly amazing. I, I want to take this in another direction. Yeah. Why is the African American baseball player shrinking from the game? I remember when I was growing up, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 30%. I think right now it's down to something like six or 7%. Well, I don't think there is a very clear, straightforward answer to that. I think there's a whole lot of factors, some of which are historic, you know, from housing and you know, how suburbs and, and resources are allocated. It's definitely dynamics of race, all kinds of things uh, that you can point to. Uh, you know, there's leadership questions on representation, which matters. There's other sports rising and becoming more prominent, more direct in terms of your success. If you're a top football player in college, you're in the NFL, period. You're not in some minor league system that has all kinds of bumps in the road, failures, middle managers that don't like you and just bury you under the ground, whatever it is, you know, you have all kinds of challenges. And, and I, you know, and I, I survived it. And, but I, I don't for a second think that certain things had to align really well as a first round draft pick. Certainly that helped. And I had advocates along the way that, that helped me get through, but so I don't, you know, I think there's a lot of factors to that and international play has been big as well from Latin America. There's so many players, the Latin American representation is like 30% of the game. Uh, that's that's very different. That that group and that growth of that um, that group of players, definitely there's a correlation to like the acceleration of one group and the diminish, you know, diminishment or diminishing of another. So I think there's no one answer to that. And I know I've definitely spoken a lot about leadership in terms of managers and GMs and owners being representative. And we're far from that, but there's been some progress, I will say, and certainly different levels of, of baseball organization. 
I want to go back to broadcasting, and you have a role at the Marquee Network in Chicago. You have a show there called Class in Session. Tell me a story. I don't know about it. Join me, Doug Glanville, for Classes in Session. We're joined by legendary sports marketing executive, Sonny Vaccaro, to explore the loyalty of amateur athletes to sport and how the business of sport has impacted the purity of amateur athletics. So this course, which is really a course, it, it came from what I was teaching at at the various universities uh, in sport and society. And I started to say to myself, well, why can't this be a show? You know, I'm talking about these issues all the time. I'm living it. And this is an avenue by which there's current events flowing in all the time that we want to be more responsive to. So Marquis was great. I mean, they took the bull by the horns. They said, we're going to, you know, let's do this. They had they had a lot of ideas about it. They 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 initiated some conversations about making it happen. They knew that I cared about this, and it came to life. And we weren't sure what what going to be, but I wanted to at least express all the ways that I can express things. I wanted to write. I wanted to voice. I wanted to interview. I wanted to you know I just do you know everything soup to nuts do the show, and um and and it's just done really well. So. It came about from that course I described, and it was just a way to bring it to life in a in a news editorializing way, but also in a very patient educational way. I bring on guests that are experts in certain fields, and I just say, hey, teach us. You know, basically, I, I send them the questions so they know. I'm not trying to gotcha, breaking news. I just want them to be informed and prepared for what we're going to talk about so that they can help us all understand an issue better. You know, I'm getting from this interview that from your heart, you're truly an educator. I grew up with educators. You know, my mom taught math through, I don't even know, we, she taught at my junior high and at my high school. But that was in the middle of like a 30 plus year career. My dad taught in Trinidad and Tobago. He was born in Trinidad. He taught until he got transferred and he decided he didn't want to get transferred anymore. So he went to med school at Howard University, uh, actually Howard undergrad and med school and then became a, a psychiatrist. So between those two, education, psychiatry, I learned a lot of patience. I learned a lot of you know, lessons on how to convey messages, how to learn and teach at the same time. So yeah, so I, I enjoy it. I mean, I really love teaching. It's uh, the students. I'm so proud to see the students now from seven, eight years ago that are like, have jobs now. They're like out in the world. Uh, quite a few of them work for teams, there's a couple of Mets, there's a couple of Connecticut Sun. Uh, it's it's really cool to see these uh, students, you know, take I guess the the lessons from that course and apply it to their professional life and and kind of reach back and keep in touch with me. So I, I feel very fortunate about that. With regards to the game, what are you most proud of during your nine year career? Most of it with the Phillies, but some 220 games with the Cubs. Two two count to Glanville. And a line drive hammer to left field, but right at Clark. One down. You know, just getting there is something miraculous. And staying there is another kind of miraculous experience. And, you know, I think, you know, I've, I was proud of how, I guess, how I was perceived from my peers and my colleagues. And I think it was important that, you know, I wanted to represent them. And I felt like they saw me in that way. That I was fairly representing everyone. Uh, you know, I was a union rep for the teams all I was on. So I always had the 
be in touch with all backgrounds. My Spanish is really good. So maybe that's something you didn't know. I speak, you know, proficient Spanish and I used to talk to all the players, help them with their health care and all kinds of things to help them adjust because I knew a lot of the Spanish speaking players from other countries had a really tough time. And they, that was way before we had translators and all that. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that was important to me. I think, you know, I love the diversity of baseball. I think that was something I highly enjoyed about my career. Um, I think some of the best moments I had was actually in Puerto Rico when I played winter ball those two years. Imparable al bosque de la derecha para Douglas Glanville. Un lanzamiento en curva, en cambio, le quitó un poquito a Itot, la empujó muy bien hacia el bosque de la derecha, Glanville. It was so important. It was transformational for my life and my career. And getting to know Tom Gamboa, as a as a coach and a mentor friend um you know I, you know i got i have milestones i think the biggest milestone i've talked a lot about was i got my 1000th hit of my career on the final day of the 2022 2002 season so in 2002 we had one game left i had 998 hits i needed two for a thousand and somewhere in new jersey my dad was basically dying of all the issues, the health issues he's had, a series of strokes, heart failure, everything under the sun. So when I got, when I faced Carl Pavano that day, and a lot of things had to align. When I had, I had 996 hits the day before, and I wasn't even starting, and Pat Burrell got hurt during the game. So they put me off the bench and I got two hits. So that, and one was a home run, 998. And I was like, I got to get this hit because I might be a free agent and never play for the Phillies again. I knew my dad was really sick. And sure enough, Carl Pavano was pitching. And I remember waking up and seeing my name in the lineup and just saying, there's no way Carl Pavano gets me out today. It's just, it's just not happening. I never felt that way before. I always felt like, okay, I'm going to get a hit here. But I never felt like this guy will never get me out. And so I got, I was three for three, the first three at bats. I got my 1,000th hit of my career, and quietly, maybe not quietly from those who were there, but my father passed away in New Jersey at 7.15, right at the end of the game. Wow. So I got my 1,000th hit <laughs> the day my dad passed away, and I got to bury him with that baseball. So that is a pride in some ways, yes, because I was very close to my dad. He was the poet in the family. And I think I've he's inspired me a lot of things in my writing and, and all those ways. My writing, my professional life and expression is so much of it is to my parents. And a lot of it, the poetic side is through my dad. And I think, you know, when my dad passed away, you know, you look for things that, oh, I got to keep his memory. And, and you have a picture on your desk or something. None of that really did it for me. None of that did it for me. It's nice that I have, I have video and that wasn't the same, but what did it for me was writing. When I wrote that very first article for the New York Times, a, pa- a paper that my dad read every day at my mom, and I wrote it and I got this reciprocal feedback, that's when I really understood what it was to be close to my dad again. And so I told, I tell all the, the um, ESPN, I've told a lot of people I've worked for, there's nothing that could describe writing as, as like a profession and do it justice for me. Because it really is like therapeutic. It's really, it's like a connection to the past. Uh, it's, a, it's a family. It's like reanimation of family. It's all these things. So when I write, that's what it means to me. So 
So you can see why I almost feel compelled to do it, let alone, you know, feel like it's something that I want to do. And um, because then there was like a love for my dad. And I think it's the way he stayed close to me. If you want to hear more guests on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know, all you have to do is go to Last Word on Sports on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the many wonderful interviews we've done dating back to January of 2021. We resume with Doug Glanville on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. You talked about the 2002 season, the end of it. 2003, you began the season with the Texas Rangers. You were eventually traded to the Cubs. You played in 28 games with them, including the playoffs, and you also got a game-winning hit in that series with the Florida Marlins. What a goal. You also played in that infamous game, the Bartman game. So tell me a story I don't know about it and your perspective. I mean, I never had a problem with Steve Bartman. And I think it's like, I don't even know if that's like, probably even giving myself too much credit in that statement. You know, Steve Bartman was a fan. You know, he's a fan like everybody else going for a lifelong souvenir in the playoffs in an organization that saw playoff futility for 100-plus years. Again in the air, down the left field line, a reaching into the stands and couldn't get it, and he's livid with a fan. That's awfully close to fan interference right there. The umpire's all over it. The umpire right down there, Mike Everett's on the play. If Alou has to reach into the stands, it's fair game for the fans to catch the ball. If the fan reaches out over the field... Then it can be ruled fan interference. That is very, very close. What are you supposed to do? That's what you do as a fan, period. And I thought it was just horrific what happened to him. Horrific. Uh, unfair, unjust. And I mean, I remember I talked to one of the security guards that was there just last year. And it, and learning more about what happened to him was even more horrifying. So, so that's one way to put it in perspective. I think the other is like, as my colleague Jason Stark says all the time, Baseball. It's just baseball. And every single game, something happens extraordinary. Every single game. The teams that capitalize on those moments or find a way, tip your cap. Marlins did that. They blew the door off the hinges. And they came back and beat Kerry Wood the next day. So you know what? They deserve it. And then you look at that lineup and you go, oh, yeah, that's one of the greatest lineups ever assembled. Oh, yeah. And their pitchers. So you're like, eh. You know, that that was a world championship team. They just beat us that day. I love when you talk about baseball. It's it's baseball. It's it's a game. It, to me, it's a 162-game soap opera. So here you are. You're the first-round pick by the Cubs in 1991. Took you about five years to get to the big leagues. And in 1997, when you begin, let's talk baseball, the Cubs started the season 0-14 under Jim Riggleman. Tell me a story I don't know about that particular start to a career. I mean, I had a, I had a little taste, a cup of coffee in 96, but to be making the opening day roster in 97 was a whole different animal. 
So I make the team. Obviously, I'm very excited. And I actually start, I think, opening day in Florida because I, I think Al Leiter is going or some lefty or something. So uh, we, who was throwing 100? It was crazy. But um, but yeah, I remember asking Mark Grace if he ever if he gets nervous still. And he says, absolutely. If you don't get nervous, you're not alive. I have It's not just butterflies in my stomach. It's pterodactyls, he said. <laughs> so, <laughs> So that that helped me a lot, you know. And and there was always mentors like him and Sean Dunstan and many others that that helped. So, but you know, I guess the naivete of being like a rookie, I guess I wasn't really a rookie. It was my first full year. Didn't really have me look closely at the schedule to think about the fact that we were playing the Braves and the Marlins and the Marlins and the Braves for like the first twelve games of the year or something crazy. And it and it didn't dawn on me completely that it was Hall of Famer after Hall of Famer on the mound or Cy Young Award after Cy Young Award winner on the mound. And that it's going to be really hard to win a game here. And so we lost 12 of those, all those games. They swept us twice. Both teams swept us twice. And yes, it was Kevin Brown. Yes, it was Al Leiter. Yes, it was Greg Maddox. Yes, it was John Smoltz. Yes, it was Tom Glavin. Yes, it was Yvonne Hernandez. I mean, give me a break. So we got destroyed. And and I was like, in some ways, I was fortunate that I was like just the platoon guy because I didn't have to face those righties. And I beat up on Glavin and, and Lighter. And Lighter, ultimately, my whole career was, uh, for whatever reason, I hit him really well. And um, so, yeah, but we were 0-14 before we looked up. And it was devolving, man. It was like there were people getting the fights on the plane, on the bus. They were fighting over seats. And I did somewhere write about this somewhere a long time ago. So Kevin Ori, and I got to remember his name. It, it's not Ramon. Yeah, it was Ramon Tatis. Okay, the pitcher. Uh, and Kevin O, they were, we were, everybody's frustrated. I think we were in San Francisco. I don't know. It's when we finally, we didn't win. We beat the Mets at some point. But anyway, on the bus, the, yeah, there was a, you know, rookies kind of doubled up. And I think someone had a single seat who was a rookie or young player. And there was an altercation over doubling up in that seat or these particular two sitting together. And yeah, they were, they were, they got into a fight. And I remember Brian McRae was like, if they're going to kill each other over a seat, let them, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, we kind of tempered it and, but yeah, it was like, you know, bolos, haymakers, you know. <laughs> so. Oh my goodness. I, ne- I never heard that story, but I, I, I know another story. You're from New Jersey, from Teaneck. So two days before Christmas, the Cubs trade you to the Phillies. And I'm thinking to myself, you're thrilled. No. No? No. I mean, growing up a 70s and 80s baseball fan, I associated players with like one singular organization, you know, my Phillies favorites, like Gary Maddox, Mike Schmidt. I know eventually that some people moved eventually when they got old, but for the most part, you stayed in your organization. So I kind of thought of that loyalty with the Cubs. I thought they would draft me, develop me. I certainly went through all kinds of madness in the minors and winter ball and Arizona fall leagues. And I was hoping that would have earned me the chance to be like the starting center fielder for the Cubs. That's why they drafted me. And they I kept getting these kind of, you know, excuses or that oh, you're not the da, 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 you're platooning. I was like, there just wasn't that final commitment. And thankfully, Jim Riggleman, who's wonderful, 
Jim would pull me aside when I was platooning or something and just stop, stop me in center field and say, hang in there. You're an everyday center fielder. It might not be here, but it's somewhere. So I always appreciated people like Jim who would tell me to, to be patient and, and see something that I didn't see. So, so yeah, I think that getting traded, although I, like you said, seemed to be wonderful as an organization, the Phillies I loved as a kid growing up. Um, some of my favorite Phillies would be coaches and, and, and I was probably more likely to be a starter. So that made sense on paper, but here was the problem. One, my loyalty thing and feeling like this was a chance to stay a cub. So you feel like one man's trash is another man's treasure. It's hard to see that. And the other is my grandfather passed away the night before, like late, probably in the morning, probably the same day. And um, so I was really not focused. I was worried, you know, my mom and my brother were down there in North Carolina and my dad was with me. It was the first time we were spending Christmas apart. So it was a lot of things that were heavy. Um, so I didn't embrace the interview with the Phillies media. And at some point they asked me that question. They said, you don't sound very excited. You know, this is your, your childhood team. And, and I, I did, you know, I apologize, but I just told them that this is what I'm dealing with right now. So, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to get traded. I don't care who it's from. It's just that feeling of getting discarded. You mentioned Jim Riggleman, who I've always had an immense amount of respect for because he did something no other manager that I've ever covered did. If you wanted to ask him a question off the record about the game, he would invite you into his office, close the door, and discuss baseball strategy with you. Nobody has ever offered to do that. Jim Riggleman opened up his arms and say, come on in. I'll teach you a few things. I love Jim Riggleman. You know, Jim Riggleman was a breath of positivity, of peace. You know, um, you know, we still are in touch. I text him. He texts me every once in a while. He's like so positive still to this day. Um, I think we just, you know, it was a manager that I really connected well with. And uh, I appreciate him because he, he knows, he knew he's a manager and he has to, there's some company lines you have to toe. And, you know, you have a responsibility to your organization. You have a duty. But he's also wanted to treat people like human. You know, he wanted to, he knew that things affected you as a person and he wanted to make sure you understood it. And so he wouldn't have to do it. He wouldn't go to the press and embarrass his organization, but he would pull you aside and tell you something you needed to hear. You know, it was appreciated. So, yeah, Riggs, I mean, Tom Treblehorn, amazing. Uh, Dusty Baker. I mean, I played some for some great managers, just very fortunate. Francona, Buck, you know, Boa was a childhood. I loved Boa as a kid. He was tough to play for, but he was, I was still like, wow, I'm playing for Larry Boa. You know, there was just a lot of, um, you know, I always, I pinch myself, quite frankly, that I'm around this game. I just sit there and just never has that waned, that appreciation for doing what I do and being around my childhood forever. I just, it, it's never lost on me. This, this game of baseball evolves, but has made some dramatic changes, not the least of which is the pitch clock. What are your thoughts about that? I like the changes, but it, it just needed to reset its own rhythm. You know, and, and I don't think it has to be like, you know, all the clocks in other sports, you don't even notice them, right? They just become part of it. I mean, I, I don't see why it won't be that for baseball. And, you know, you think of like a good song that you love. 
and you listen to it and you're like, oh, well, when there's no drummer, when there's no guitar, you can still sing that song. You still have a rhythm for that song. But, you know, you don't need a beat. You create your own beat. And I think, like, when the song is something you remember, you have a natural rhythm for it to keep going. Baseball got so far away from that. It, it almost needed, like, a metronome. You know, it needed, like, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, you know, play the first note to know what key you're in kind of thing. And then it does it on its own. And I think it will. I'm not saying it'll take the clocks away, but I think people will just get used to it. You need to adapt. And that's exactly what you have done is adapt as you've gone along. We mentioned some of the things that you have done um, regarding literary work. You also wrote a book, The Game From Where I Stand, which is really kind of the inner workings of baseball, the good, the bad, the ugly. Why did you write it? Well, it, it kind of goes back to my dad and, and like feeling like there's something I needed to say. And as a writer, when I my first column I wrote was about steroids and PEDs, but I wrote it from the point of view of like why these players take it, and it's not just greed and money, it's also insecurity and and fear. So we talk about fear batting at the top of the order. So in writing that, I always had a different perspective, you know, as a player and a communicator in writing, that there is more to be said than just the cliche of oh let me name names let me let me call people names there i and i remember feeling like the that part that perspective on stories was missing and i felt like well if i can find something that's missing in this perspective that could add value then why can't i do that in many other areas right and that's where the new york times column eventually came to life when i pitched them on it like to, to my shock they were like go ahead write it mm-hmm. so um you know, so I think that the book was an, a sort of extended version of that, of that theme, that column called, you know, it's sort of a baseball is life column, but it was called Heading Home. And uh, I wanted to write it because for all the aforementioned reasons, it's therapeutic. <laughs> it was um, insight that I thought was different. Um, I love writing and I get to write about something I love. So that was easy. And um, I thought storytelling was such a good part of big part of baseball. And, and I felt the power of being able to tell stories. So all that together. Um, and I think there was things I wanted to chime in on, quite frankly, you know, steroids, unions, um, race, all kinds of things that weren't really talked about a lot in uh, the public discourse. So the book kind of came together. Uh, I loved writing it too. Loved it. So, What's next for Doug Glanville, or is there a next? There's so much on the plate, and uh, there's so much I could put on my plate that I, I'm thankful that I get so many opportunities. Um, it's really incredible, uh, and that I like, you know. But I first and foremost, I'm trying to have a as balanced a schedule as I can, given that I'm a parent and I have young kids and my wife holds down the fort in many ways and who's a highly accomplished person that is, um, you know, chosen to be an anchor of this family in many ways. And so I travel a lot for, for this work that I describe, and I feel very fortunate every day about doing it, but I also know it, it, it takes me away from my family. So, so whatever I do has got to be in concert with, with having a, good enough balance and be accessible like you know the one of the reasons like i didn't want to manage because 
you know, that is infinite travel. I mean, this travel I'm doing is nothing compared to managing a team. And that in, in concert with what was happening in our country around race, I felt really worried about leaving and not sort of talking to my kids as much as I could about what was going on. I ask this final question to all my guests. If not for baseball, what would you have been? I probably would have been a transportation engineer, which is what I, I guess, technically am because I graduated with a degree in transportation engineering or systems engineering. Uh, and I probably would have done, following the footsteps of my mentor, Vukan Vucic, who is a professor of mine at Penn, uh, who became an international um, figure around transportation and and communities, transit-oriented design. And maybe, and this is something I did while I was playing, I reached out to HOK Sport, you know, the architectural firm. Yes. And the firm that, there was a firm, Cole Ewing Cole, I think they were the firm that built, uh, I think, the Phillies ballpark. I reached out to both those companies to think about interning in the off season as a, uh, you know, doing transportation and sports, combining those to design new stadium. So I was, you know, that was before I got more established. I didn't know. So, um, so I probably would have gone into that and still had sport around me or in baseball, but I wear a lot of hats. I, you know, I teach my course at UConn. I have my podcast with Jason Stark for the athletic. I write wherever. Um, I have Marquee. I have my show at Marquee, and I do ESPN. And and um, but I'm a parent of a husband first and foremost. And I think uh, those have led to a lot of things. And I think the next thing would be to expand on some of the concepts I'm already swirling around. That is my class and my show. I think I could make those bigger and have a bigger footprint. Um, I'd love to write another book. I have a lot of ideas um, about, you know, another version of what I wrote before. Um, you know, I'd love to dabble in like, you know, I don't know, maybe writing a script or something along those lines. Well, this has been an absolute delight and very educational. I really learned a lot about you. I can't tell you uh, how much I appreciate you taking out the time to do this in your very, very busy life. I can wish you continued success and joy in life. And thank you, Doug Glanville, for telling me a story I don't know. All right, George, pleasure. Appreciate you having me. My thanks to the Marquee Sports Network, WGN-TV, Fox Sports, and ESPN Radio for those wonderful highlights. And my thanks, as always, to the people behind the scenes that help make this wonderful podcast possible. T.J. Reeves for putting us on the map, Will Hatzel for his crafty editing, and Nick Tochi for our wonderful graphics. And to our presenting sponsor, Mr. Duct. You can find them on the web at mrduct.com. Tune in next week when we feature another intriguing guest on Tell Me a Story I Don't Know. I'm George Hoffman, and that's all she wrote.